All right, Harvest. Well, let's take our Bibles together, if we could, and turn to the book of Habakkuk. In the Old Testament, are you starting to love this book now, Habakkuk in the Old Testament? I hope you are. This will be our third message in this great book, and we've got a lot of ground to cover today in Habakkuk chapter 2, so I'm going to skip an introduction and just get right into it, okay? Last week, here's what we saw in the book of Habakkuk. Last week, we saw a very sophisticated and well-argued hissy fit from the prophet Habakkuk. Y'all know what a hissy fit is? Y'all know what that is? Some of you are like, yes, Pastor Tony, we know what that is. We see them every day. Some of you know all about that. Well, when our children throw hissy fits, uh, let's just face it, they're usually pretty unsophisticated, right? Wouldn't you say that? It's like, I want that. And you're like, no, you can't have that. But I want it. Well, I'm sorry, you can't have that. But I want it. Does anybody else have conversations like this throughout the day? Man, we're a little past that, but I, I remember that. Well, you know, what is that three-year-old, that four-year-old, that five-year-old doing in that moment? Here's what they're doing. They're not trusting you. They're not trusting that you have what's best in mind for them. So you're like, you know, don't eat that. You've had too much sugar. Too much sugar's not good for you, but I want that. They don't trust you. You say, don't, don't take a hold of that chainsaw. It's not good. Trust me. And they're like, but I want it. Don't stick that fork in the power outlet. Why? Just trust me, okay? It's not good for you. Well, Habakkuk has a similar crisis of trust with the Lord. At first, he doesn't understand why God is allowing wicked Israelites to continue to lead the country. And God's like, I got this, Habakkuk. I'm going to take care of this. In fact, I'm going to bring the Babylonians. They're going to bring judgment upon Israel. We'll take care of it. What does Habakkuk say after that? I don't like that, God. That's not a good plan. Can't you come up with something better than that? And he's, he struggles to trust God in that moment. He says, essentially, in, in a very sophisticated way, much more sophisticated than our children or than we argue or complain to the Lord. He says, Lord, how can you have a more wicked kingdom than us come and bring judgment upon us? I know we've been bad, says Habakkuk. Habakkuk admitted as much in verses one through four. I know we've been bad, but how can you bring an even more wicked people like the Babylonians to punish Israel? I don't like that. And Habakkuk develops his complaint at the end of chapter one with complex reasoning and ironclad argumentation. His arguments are tight. His reasoning is sound, or so he thinks. It's so good, how could God ever counter what Habakkuk says at the end of chapter one? And then chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk, like I said last week, he climbs up on his high horse. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower, and look out and see what Yahweh will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is Habakkuk's Martin Luther moment. This is where he says, essentially, here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. Amen. And he waits for God to respond. But unlike Martin Luther's interlocutors, Habakkuk's, God's got better arguments for Habakkuk. Habakkuk is in the wrong. Martin Luther was in the right. That's the difference. And God is about to set him straight in chapter 2. 
So let's see how God responds to Habakkuk's hissy fit concerning Babylon. Go ahead and write this down as number one in your notes. First of all, we see God's message to Habakkuk. We're going to look at God's message to Habakkuk, God's message to Babylon, and then at the very end of chapter two, we're going to see God's message for everybody, okay? But let's start here. God's message for Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. That's the message. We sang about that already. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Or let me say it this way, more colloquially, you might say this. Stop complaining, Habakkuk, and trust me. That's what God's going to say. Just trust me. And this is exactly what you tell your children when they're arguing with you. Just trust me. I'm your dad. I'm your mom. I know what's best for you. That's what God's going to say here. Here's what God says in verse 2. Habakkuk says, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Last week I said it was a, it was a marvel that God didn't just vaporize Habakkuk in that moment. That is a marvel. It's a marvel that God doesn't vaporize us when we argue with God or when we complain or when we're full of negativity. God is long suffering with us. That was a good place for an amen. Can I get an amen, church? Are you awake this morning? Is it too hot outside? Aren't you cool yet? God is long-suffering with us. Some of you, anyway. God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And so Habakkuk might want quicker judgment, instantaneous judgment, but when he stops and thinks about it, he doesn't want that. And so, like I said last week, this is an argument among friends. Habakkuk and God, this is not an accusation among enemies. They're having a little debate here. And so God says, take up your pen, Habakkuk, write this down, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. In other words, God's about to say something that's going to scare the bejeepers out of everybody. Write this down so that they may run who read it. They're going to be fearful at what I'm about to unleash, Habakkuk. Okay, what's God going to say? This is intriguing. Let's keep reading. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, verse 3. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. What did Habakkuk want? Justice. When did he want it? Now. He wants instantaneous retribution, and God says, wait. Has God ever tell you that sometime in your lives? chill out and wait that's what he's telling Habakkuk his timing is right it's perfect and it's not Habakkuk's timing God is always on time and he's never early and he's never on our timetable that's what he says in verse 3 and then God says this in verse 4 he says behold his soul his soul who's the his behold his soul is puffed up it is not upright within him but the righteous shall live by his faith. Who is the his here? Whose soul is puffed up? Is this Babylon? Is this Habakkuk? Is this Israel? I'm inclined to think it's Babylon, but I, I wouldn't rule out a warning here for Habakkuk. You know, Babylon isn't the only one that's struggling with haughtiness in this book. You know, Habakkuk was... Up on his high horse, he was awfully confident before the Lord, making judgments and pronouncing to God what God should do. So I'm not so sure that there's not a warning here for Habakkuk. 
Don't get puffed up now. Remember who you're talking to, Habakkuk. And besides all of that, here's what God is saying. Yeah, I know, Habakkuk, that Babylon is not righteous. I know that they are haughty and prideful. But here's what you need to remember, buddy. You aren't so righteous yourself. And you know where your righteousness comes from? It comes by faith. You've got to trust me. You know what, Habakkuk? You're a son of Adam just like the Babylonians are. You're prone to pride just like they are. And you know what? You're not saved by your own righteousness. You're not saved by the good that you do. You're saved by faith. Your righteousness is appropriated into your life. Remember what I told Abraham in the book of Genesis? Your faith is credited to you as righteousness. That's how you are saved. You need to trust me. You need to walk in faith. It's not just a matter of I'm saved. Okay, I'm saved by faith. No, you need to live out that faith. You need to walk in faith, Habakkuk. You need to start trusting me, Habakkuk. By the way, Harvest Decatur, let me just, let's just step out of the text for a moment and let me say something. Aren't you glad that God doesn't require you to be righteous on your own and saved by your own righteousness? Aren't you glad that God has a way to appropriate righteousness into your life and it's not by your work, it's by faith? That is... That is Christianity in its essence. You don't save yourself. God saves you. And that's done by faith. You know, I, I mentioned Martin Luther a second ago. Let me just circle back with him. You know, Martin Luther's biggest issue 500 years ago with the Catholic Church, it wasn't indulgences, although he had big problems with indulgences and he was upset about that. His biggest issue with the Catholic Church, it wasn't the corruption of the church or the corruption of the clergy, although he had big problems with that too. His biggest issue with the Catholic Church, the reason the Protestant Reformation got started is because the Catholic Church was teaching people, you are saved by your works or by some weird combination of faith and works. And Martin Luther says, this is a hill to die on. This, is, this cannot be. This is not right. This is not biblical. You are not saved by your works. You're not saved by your faith and your works. You are saved. You are saved by faith alone. Everybody with me? That's, he was willing to die on a hill for that. Martin Luther said this. You can read this on the screen. It is faith without good works and prior to good works that takes us to heaven. We come to God through faith alone alone sola fide through faith alone john calvin the other great reformer he said similarly it is by faith it is faith which strips us of all arrogance and leads us naked and needy to god that we may seek salvation from him alone which would otherwise be far removed from us that is a heel to die on harvest decatur look I'll, let me just be straight with you i have very strong views on eschatology on how the end of the end is going to play out but you know what I'm not, I'm not willing to die on a hill for my views on eschatology I'll argue with you but I won't die on a hill for that I have strong views too on, on women in ministry and complementarianism and you know what I, I think my view is right <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not willing to die on a hill for that I would die on a hill for this. Your salvation is by faith alone. Why is that so? Why would you do that, Tony? 
Because it's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. You can't be saved by your own works. And Paul, Paul reiterates this, actually quoting Habakkuk 2.4 says it this one this way, no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, Galatians chapter 3. Paul says elsewhere too, Romans chapter 1, for in it, in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written in Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Jesus himself said this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's it. It's a matter of faith. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Listen, Harvest Decatur, if you don't hear anything else that I say the rest of today, or if you haven't heard anything that I've said thus far, I want you to hear this. You're not saved by your works. You're not going to earn your way into eternity. You are saved by grace through faith. Everybody got that? That is essential Christianity. That is essential to our, our church, our faith, our history, 2,000 years of church history. Sola fide, by faith alone. By the way, just a little trailer for this next year. I think this next year, I'm still thinking about this, but I, I think I'm going to preach through the book of Romans next year. So, shh, don't tell anybody it's a secret, okay? <laughs> Somebody wasn't at church today, don't tell them. It's a secret. So we're going to learn all about by faith alone as we work through the book of Romans next year. Anyway, so let's go back to the text here. Let's get back to Habakkuk. What was God's message to Habakkuk right here? Was it the same as Paul's message in Romans, in Galatians? Well, yes and no. It was more than that. It wasn't just saying faith in me for, is for salvation. God's also telling Habakkuk, you need to walk by faith. You need to believe me definitely for salvation but you also need to walk in faith you need to live out your faith here let me say it this way you need to trust me Habakkuk you don't understand what I'm doing all right trust me trust what I'm doing trust in my character when you can't understand what I'm doing that's what he's telling and you know what just applicationally here you have those moments too and I have those moments too where we don't understand what God is doing and we need to trust him and sometimes I think we can trust, yeah, God, I'm trusting you for my salvation. I'm trusting you for my eternity. You know, those big things, but I can't really trust you with these other things. You know, my marriage, my kids, our country. What about Iraq right now? Iraq is such a mess. I can't trust you with that, God. Like, as if we can compartmentalize our lives and our faith. Trust him for eternity. You gotta, you gotta deal with this other stuff yourself. No, Habakkuk's saying, God's got the whole world in his hands. He knows what he's doing. He's going to bring about his perfect purposes in his timing. Trust him. Trust him. Everybody got it? Just give me a thumbs up if you got it. You ready for point two? All right. So that was God's message to back it. Go ahead and write this down as number two. Here's God's message to Babylon. And to that country that God said in chapter one, that he's going to use to punish Judah for their sinfulness. Here's the message. The unrighteous will be punished. The unrighteous will be punished. In other words, here's what God's going to say in these next 15 verses. He's going to say, your days are numbered, Babylon. 
God is fully aware of your sinful actions. He's not going to turn a blind eye to your sinfulness. God knows what you're doing. God's going to pay you back for your evil. And God's saying this too in earshot of Habakkuk to let Habakkuk know, yes, I'm using Babylon right now to punish Judah. I'm using Babylon right now to refine my people Israel. But Babylon is not going to get off scot-free for her sins and for her iniquity, Habakkuk. God is no man's debtor. I'm going to take care of this. And so that's what follows in verses 5 through 19. It's, it's, it's a statement of judgment against Babylon. And I'll be honest with you with verses 5 through 19. This is, this is quite honestly some of the most beautiful and some of the most difficult poetry in the, in the Old Testament, in the Bible. You know, typically, I'll just let you in a a little bit on what I do week to week. You know, usually I spend about an hour translating uh, a passage of Scripture before I preach, Greek, Hebrew. And this last week, it took me several hours to translate this because it's so dense. It's so obscure what God is saying here. And it's so, if I could say this too, it's so poetically beautiful. You never thought a judgment passage could be so beautiful, did you? What Habakkuk communicates here by poetry what God you would say even communicates through Habakkuk to us but the big idea of this the ultimate message that God is revealing here is that your days are numbered Babylon unrighteousness will not go unpunished God will deal with it God will deal with it and woven throughout this text with all of its complexity is is a a structure This text is designed around five woe statements. You might even see them in your Bible if you work through it a little bit, verses 5 through 19. Woe in Hebrew is the word hoy. It means woe or aha or alas. It signals judgment. It signals lament. And in Habakkuk 2, there are five woes that specify five things that God hates about what the Babylonians are doing. And God isn't shy about pointing them out or threatening with judgment the Babylonians for what they're doing. So to all that, you might say, okay, Pastor Tony, you know, I don't live in Babylon. That might be debatable, actually, but you might, you know, I don't live in the Old Testament Babylon right now. What does this have to do with me? What, you know, what, what do I do with this? Well, first of all, I would say Babylon has a long history of influence in our world, We might not live in literal Babylon, metaphorical Babylon. There's a case to be made for that. By the way, also in the book of Revelation, Babylon will rise again, according to the the Apostle John and what he writes there. So those woes that are recorded here will will be resurrected as well with Babylon. But what I want to show you in this text through these five woes are Five things that God hates, that God opposes universally, whether it's 6th century Babylon or whether it's 21st century America. These are things that God hates. And the application for us, for all of you as I work through this, is to the extent that you see these five things in your own heart. Everybody listening? To the extent that you see Babylon in your own heart, in your attitude with others, you need to you need to de-Babylonize your heart, okay? So that's what we're going for. So five things that are lamentable before the Lord. That's what I'm calling this. Here's the first. Oppression. 
God hates oppression. God hates it. Verse 5, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. That's Babylon. Babylon's greed is wide as hell. Like death, he has not, never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as own all people. Shall not all these take up their taunt against them with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you, Babylon, will be spoiled for them. Now what the Babylonians would do in the Old Testament world is they would, they would collect tribute by means of a treaty from nations that they conquered. It's what's referred to as the suzerain vassal treaty. So the, the vassal state, whether it be you know, Egypt or Assyria or Israel, they would pay tribute to the suzerain, the conquering nation, which was Babylon. And this didn't start with Babylon. The Assyrians did this. The Egyptians did this. Many ancient nations did this. You would dominate a people and then you would extract from them through extortion money in order to build your kingdom. So this happened in the ancient world. Babylon wasn't the first to do this, but they you might say perfected this. And also the Babylonians would do this as well. They would go into nations. Nebuchadnezzar was famous for this. He would conquer a nation and take out the brightest people, the best and the brightest young people. There would be this huge brain drain in that country. And they would go back to Babylon and they would be indoctrinated by the Babylonians. You guys remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Amendigo. That's, that's what happened with them. They went to Babylon. They got indoctrinated. They were supposed to be assimilated. And, and the Babylonian influence was going to spread all over the world. All the best people were going to be, become Babylonians. And in this passage, God rebukes the Babylonians and likens them to death. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects for himself all peoples. Part of this prophecy here in Habakkuk involves a, a foretelling into the future. God says there will be a day of reckoning for you, Babylon. You will get back what you've put on all these other nations. Look at verse 7. Will not your debtors suddenly, suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. You'll get back what you did to other people. Remember what Jesus told Peter? Peter pulled out his sword, tried to bring the kingdom of heaven by force. What did, what did he tell him? Put your sword away, Peter. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. That's, that's actually an Old Testament principle. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The Babylonians will get back what's coming to them. Here's, let me just speak to something right now. I get really annoyed in our, with our media and in our world when people try to compare Christianity and Islam, when they say things like all religions are the same, I get really annoyed with that. You know why? Because it's not true. It's not true. The founder of Islam, Muhammad, took up the sword and he killed people in the name of his God. That's how he established his religion. The founder of Christianity, Jesus Christ, he laid down his sword. He laid down his life so that others might live. That is, that's not the same. That's completely different. It's completely different. The Babylonians killed and oppressed people. That is lamentable before the Lord. 
The Muslim religion kills and oppresses people. That is lamentable before the Lord. I'll even say this, when Christians kill and oppress people, and we've got a bit of that in our history, that is lamentable before the Lord. That's not the mission that Jesus sent us on. That's not the, the gospel. That's not the great commission. God says in verse 8, because you have plundered many nations, Babylon, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and to all who dwell in them. This is a principle called lex talionis. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And God is saying, like I said, to Habakkuk through this, I got this, Habakkuk. Don't you worry about Babylon. They will get what's coming to them. Their day of judgment will come. Be patient. Wait. Here's the second thing that's lamentable before the Lord. There's oppression. There's also injustice. We see injustice with the Babylonians. This is something, by the way, this idea, this thing that happens in our world, this is something that, that really bothers my wife. Ooh. You guys know Sonia, right? She's super mild-mannered and kind. But when she sees injustice in our world, when she experiences injustice, there's this Holy Spirit fire that gets lit under her. Woo, look out. And, that, and I'll just tell you that's right. That's, God doesn't like it either. So here's the second woe, verse 9. God says, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. It's a great word picture there, right? It's a a picture of a hawk or an eagle that kills and takes takes its kill to a high place in the trees that is, you know, inaccessible to other, to to land predators or to others. And, And in fact, historically, that's what Babylon did. They built bigger and bigger walls. Nebuchadnezzar built bigger and bigger walls around the city of Babylon so that he was impregnable or so he thought. And God's saying, you're not impregnable. You're not untouchable. I can get to you if I want to, says the Lord. By the way, it's speaking of eagle's nest. That's what, that's what Hitler had in World War II. Do you remember that? The eagle's nest, the Kaulstein house in the Bavarian Alps. He had that place way up in the mountains where he would gather with his military leaders and they would drink tea and they would plan the destruction of Europe and the rest of the world. And he thought that place was impregnable. He thought nobody could touch him there. He was wrong. God says of the Babylonians in verse 10, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone. Look at verse 11. The stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. It's another word picture here. You know, when inanimate objects speak, that's a poetic device. Remember Jesus in the triumphal entry, he said, if you guys didn't cry out, the rocks would cry out. When, when Cain killed Abel in the book of Genesis, God said that your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Something like that is going on here. The walls of these cities are crying out about the injustice of the Babylonians. The wood beams are speaking too against them for their injustice. They denounce them. And God is denouncing their wickedness too. Here's a third thing that's lamentable before the Lord. There's cruelty also. Number three, 
God says, woe, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. To be honest, that's what I see when I look out on the Muslim religion. It's a religion that's built through bloodshed. It's a religion founded on iniquity. Muhammad, in the seventh century, when Muhammad, you know, rose up in Saudi Arabia, he was surrounded by Christians. I don't know if you know that, but most of the Near East was Christianized. And so was Northern Africa, too, by the way. And Muhammad rose up. He didn't like the Christians. He revolted against them. He started wars against them. And, you know, when Muhammad, when, when the Muslim religion started to spread, I just want you to know, it didn't spread through conversion and through evangelism. There's no great commission in the Muslim religion. It's not like they had good arguments back and forth and like, mm-hmm, oh, the tenets of Islam are better than Christianity. I'll choose that. No, people were forcibly converted by the sword. It's a religion of violence. Similarly, the Spanish conquistadors, they conquered the new world by violence. That's not good. And if it wasn't for some brave monks in South America, the violence would have been worse. What happened there would have been even worse. And you know, we've got in America, we've got some sins in that to own ourselves. Our own violence, our own cruelty that we need to own and confess and repent from. God says in verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood or founds a city on iniquity, i.e. slavery in America. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. In other words, let me translate what God is saying here. I know it's a little obscure. God is saying, I've made all human beings in my image. No person should be dehumanized. No no person should be dehumanized. No person should be treated with contempt by a more powerful person or a more powerful kingdom, like what the Babylonians were doing. Some of you might remember that was Hitler's whole agenda in World War II. He, He saw other people as unworthy of life. The, the German phrase for that is Lebens und Wirtes Lebens. Life unworthy of life. He saw some people, even the mentally handicapped and those who had, uh, those from other races, he saw them as life unworthy of life. By the way, that's why it was so awesome. In the Olympics in Berlin in 1936, when Jesse Owens, this African-American, came to Berlin and won four gold medals right in front of Hitler. That was, an, that was one of the great events of the 20th century. You know, here's Hitler saying that the Aryan race is the greatest race, race and all other races aren't worthy of life. And the African-American from, our, from, from the Ohio State University, folks. <laughs> Shout out to George Bennett if you're listening to this podcast. Went over there to Germany, beat all the German sprinters, beat all the British sprinters, beat everybody right in Hitler's face. That's one of the great moments of the 20th century. As if to show all human beings are created in the image of God. Take that, Hitler. And and here's, here's a practical application for us. Christians, everybody listening? There's no place in our faith for racism. There's no place in our faith for xenophobia or for hostility and cruelty to other human beings. 
All people are made in the image of God and are worthy of honor and dignity. And God says, I hate this cruelty. And God says in verse four, this is a great promise for the future. This is messianic even, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Someday and hopefully soon, representatives from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation will gather at the throne of God and will worship God for eternity. That's what the book of Revelation says. I can't wait till that day. In the meantime, there's no place in the Christian faith for racial or ethnic hostility, for cruelty. Here's a fourth thing that's lamentable before the Lord. There's a fourth thing that the Babylonians are guilty of, debauchery. God says, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Whew. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. As well the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. By the way, just a historical footnote here. The Babylonians were renowned for their drinking abilities, drinking and violence. They were mean drunks and they would destroy peoples and they knew how to party. And by the, you know, by the way, just a side note here. If you're looking for a pastor to denounce all drinking, I'm not your pastor. I don't, I'm not a teetotaler in that way. But if you're also looking for a pastor to flaunt his liberty and not ever talk about the evils of alcoholism or of alcohol, I'm not your pastor either. There's just, either. There's just too much in the Bible. There's too much linkage between the abuse of alcohol and things like debauchery, things like violence. You know, Billy Sunday, God bless him. He would preach against drinking with the same passion that he would preach the gospel. And I don't think that was right, but you, you got to understand that context. He lived in a day when men would work all day. They'd go to the bar, they'd get drunk and they'd come home and beat their wives and beat their children. I don't fault him for that. I'm not so sure I wouldn't preach against drinking if I was in that milieu. And so th there's just too much linkage here between violence and debauchery, drinking and evil. Here's another historical footnote for you. And this one's really important. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, this is 600 BC. Nebuchadnezzar was this incredibly powerful ruler in Babylon. He destroyed and he subjugated many people, including Israel and Lebanon, other places too. Verse 17 says the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. you know, Lebanon was famous for their forests, these massive forests that actually Solomon used to build his temple. And there's actual evidence in the Egyptian tombs that the pharaohs used Lebanese forestry for, for some of their building projects. And so what Babylon did is they went to Lebanon and they denuded their forest. They took down all their trees, cut them down, destroyed their cities, destroyed their people, destroyed Judah, destroyed other places. They were just on a massive rampage. This was Nebuchadnezzar initially. 
this powerful man that led, it was, you know, the height of his powers was in, Nebuchadnezzar was in power and Daniel was one of his advisors. Well, it's like a lot of kingdoms. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar had a son and then he had a grandson and his grandson didn't run, as, didn't rule the country as well as he did. In fact, Daniel chapter five speaks about this. Speaks about a, a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar named Belshazzar. Remember that guy? Remember the writing on the wall, Daniel chapter five? Well, Belshazzar had this great feast and he brought out the vessels of silver and gold from the temple in Jerusalem and he got drunk on them and he partied and he was having a good time. And then all of a sudden, as they're worshiping their gods and they're celebrating and they're getting drunk, this mysterious hand just appears in the banquet hall and starts writing something on the wall and they're all terrified. It's a great scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in the Bible actually. Here's Rembrandt's rendition of this, Belshazzar's feast. Everybody's terrified. You can see it on his face. And this hand that just appears writes out many, many tekel and parson. Nobody knows what it means. So what do they do? They bring out Daniel, this elderly man who at one time in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was able to interpret weird things. So they bring Daniel in and Daniel interprets what he says. What this hand says, many, many, Tekel and Parson. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting, Belshazzar. Parson, your kingdom is divided this day and given to the Medes and the Persian. And then the text says this. This is Daniel chapter 5. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. The kingdom of Babylon was destroyed in one evening while its king was boozing it up with his friends. Here's the great wonder of all this. All of this happened 539 BC. You can look this up in the history books and see when the Persians conquered Babylon, 539 BC. Well, Habakkuk wrote his prophecy at least 60 years before this. What's the significance of that? Well, 60 years is a long time. If I wrote a prophecy right now, 60 years from now, it being fulfilled, I wouldn't be alive to see it. Are you all with me? Here's the significance of it. Significance of it. Habakkuk wrote this prophecy about the downfall of Babylon, probably at around 600 BC, and it didn't happen until 539 BC. More than likely, he never lived to see his prophecy fulfilled. He never lived to see the downfall of Babylon. So he had to trust, even as he was writing this, that God was ultimately going to bring about on the Babylonians what he said he would. Significance. Here it is. God's on his own timetable, people. Get used to it. We want justice. When do we want it? Now. God works on his own timetable. And Habakkuk, he saw it. He saw the fall of the Babylonians in prophecy, but he probably never saw it with his own eyes. He had to trust the Lord with that. And that leads to the final thing that the Lord hates. Oppression, debauchery. Number five, also idolatry. 
God says, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trust in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Everybody catch that in verse 18? It's maker trust in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. You know what God is doing right here? God is taunting the Babylonians. This is what we call in the basketball court trash talking. God is talking trash to the Babylonians. You make gods that can't talk, that are dumb, literally. That's what God's saying. Why do you worship this thing that can't talk? Why do you worship a thing that you make with your own hands, Babylonians? They're silent. Woe to him, verse 19, who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise, speak, O speechless one. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. It is dumb, literally. It can't talk. Rudyard Kipling, author of the Jungle Book, he said this about the heathen in one of his poems. I like this poem. It says, the heathen in his blindness bows down to wooden stone. He don't obey no orders unless they is his own. That's the Babylonians. Bowing down to wooden stone, they don't obey no orders unless they is his own. And God's going to take them out. God's going to judge them. With the benefit of hindsight, we can look back and we can say, Habakkuk, we saw it. We see it. God did bring judgment upon the Babylonians. Habakkuk probably never lived to see it. And so why is this here? Why is God insulting idols? Why is God telling us to trust him and not trust in idols or other things? Some of you this morning might say, idols, idols, yeah, Pastor Tony. It's a good thing we're, we're sophisticated Western Americans. We don't got any idols here. You sure about that? John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. We got idols. They might not be wood and stone, but we got idols. We got things in our heart that we put in place of God, and God says, that is dumb. Don't do that. I'm the God who speaks. I'm the God who rules. I'm the God that is sovereign. And Peter says, in your hearts, set apart Christ the Lord is holy. Don't make your idol, your heart an idol-making factory. Set apart in your hearts Christ Jesus, the Lord, as holy. That's where you put your faith. Everybody with me? Everybody's significantly convicted now, are you? Had enough judgment text? I hope we have enough to work with this next week to deal with in our hearts oppression, injustice, cruelty, debauchery, idolatry. I think we all have some work to do this week to de-Babylonize our heart in obedience to the Lord. And to that you might say, okay, Pastor Tony, the righteous live by faith, the unrighteous will be punished, 
I got it. Anything else? Anything left for us here? Yes. There's one final thing. God had a message for Habakkuk. He has a message for Babylon. He's got a message for all of us in verse 20. Here it is. You can write this down. That's number three. Here's the message for everyone. Y'all listening? Hush. Hush. Yahweh is the one true God. Habakkuk says in verse 20, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, right Yahweh? The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And you might say, who's that for, Tony? Is that for the Babylonians? Yes. Is that for Habakkuk, the complainer? Yes. Is that for the Babylonian gods, the idols in verses 18 and 19? Yes, but they can't talk anyway. So I think this is part of God's trash talk. Keep silent, idols. Oh, never mind. You can't talk anyway. No big deal. Hush, keep silent. God is in control. God's got this. I'm not so sure the main person that God is talking to right now isn't Habakkuk. Habakkuk, enough with the complaining. Hush. I'm on my throne. I'm in control of all these things. Be silent. Here's the question. I'll close with this. I'm almost done. I promise. Here's the question I want to close with. Does God want us to always be silent before him? In other words, can we, should we extrapolate this principle from verse 20 where God says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Should we extrapolate from that that God wants us to be quiet all the time? Answer, no. No, there's a time to speak and there's a time to keep silent. There's Ecclesiastes 3. Remember that? For everything there is a season, a time to keep silent, a time to speak. Remember that song from the birds? For every season, tur, tur, tur. Do y'all know that song? A time to da 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 Bob Clark, my singing critic. <laughs> there's a time to be silent. There's a time to talk. Why is Habakkuk, here's the question. Why is Habakkuk 2, verse 20, a time for silence? Why does God end the chapter this way? Here's why. God is telling Habakkuk, no more talking, Habakkuk. No more complaining. No more arguing with me. This is the end of the matter. This is the end. Notice, by the way, to, to Habakkuk's compliment here, there's no third complaint in this book. It's not like he takes up another complaint with the Lord. The Lord said, it's over. The argument's done. 
I'm in my holy temple. I'm in my, my throne room. I've got everything under control. I'm sovereign over the universe. Hush, Habakkuk. There's times in our life when we just need to hush and trust God. And that's why God is saying that here. And you might say, well, what does Habakkuk do? Because there's a third chapter. Come back next week and I'll tell you. How's that? Come back next week for the dramatic conclusion of Habakkuk. I'll tell you what Habakkuk does. He worships God. No more complaining. No more doubts. No more questioning God. It's time to worship. It's time to praise God. And you know what, Harvest Decatur? There comes times in your life, and maybe the time is right now. I don't understand what you're doing, God. I don't know why you're doing this. I don't know why there's this pain in my heart right now. I don't know why I had to go through this painful circumstance. I don't know why this. I don't know why that. I don't know why our world is such a mess. But I'm putting all of that aside. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust in your sovereignty, and I'm going to worship you. I'm just going to worship you. Let's bow in a word of prayer, and then I'm going to be silent, and we're going to worship the Lord. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you have the whole world in your hands. Thank you that you are the sovereign power in this universe. We trust you. We believe you. God, there may be somebody in this room right now who has some deep hurt right now in their heart. And they are questioning you and they are struggling with negativity. And the spirit of Habakkuk is upon them. God, would you comfort that person right now? Would you assure them that you are on your throne, that you're going to use every negative thing, every bad thing in their life for your ultimate good purposes. I pray that, Lord. I want, I want everyone in this room to have that assurance, that confidence. And God, I pray collectively as a church that you would help us to walk by faith. That you would help us to trust you. That you would help us, Lord, to to not doubt or dismiss you or, God forbid, anger you with our questioning and our complaining. God, grow our faith. Grow our trust in you. We're saved by faith. Help us to walk by faith. 